One of the very wonderful additions to the life of the shul over the past couple of years has been the Siegel Torah Institute, which has taken place in the mornings. And we've had the schos of having Rabbi Dr. David Horowitz uh, serve as the Magid Shir, the director of that particular institute. And many, many people over the course of these past couple of years have benefited tremendously uh, from the Torah erudition that he's brought to the Torah Institute. With COVID last year, like many other things, the Torah Institute was upended in person. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, the, the Shiurim continued over this past year on Zoom. And tonight, which marks the anniversary of the yard site of Rabbi Horowitz's mother, it's uh, our privilege to be able to welcome Rabbi Horowitz back in person to be able to deliver a shear on the topic of Rabbeinu Gershom, the light of the exile. And Be'ezus Hashem, this will be a slow beginning to having Rabbi Horowitz uh, back, not only in a Zoom capacity, but in person. Without further ado, it's a privilege and a pleasure to introduce Rabbi Horowitz. Thank you very much, Rabbi Ram. It's uh, wonderful to be back here in person. As Rabbi Ram mentioned, hopefully it's be uh, slowly but surely will this magaif of COVID will subside and we'll be able to have Limud HaTorah Bitsafsa, right, which, which indicates like a personal, physical connection. So I'd like to give Lizeich Nishmas, my mother, Minna Horowitz, her seventh yard site, today, a brief overview of one of the first gedolim in Europe, Rabbeinu Gershom Ma'or Hagola, the light of the exile. And it's going to be very brief, hope, hopefully won't be rushed, but I do want to discuss some of the salient points that Rabbeinu Gershom is known for. Rabbeinu Gershom and Yehuda Maragola was one of the first great German Jewish Talmudic scholars and a spiritual molder of German Jewry. He was born approximately in the year 960 and died in the year 1028, almost a thousand years ago. He was apparently born in Metz, right, is Alsace Lorraine, which kept on going back and forth between Germany and France, on the day on the German side of the border between Germany and France, and his home was in Mainz or Magenza on the Rhineland area of Germany. Among his pupils was Rabbi Eliezer HaGadol, Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar, and Rabbi Yitzchak ben Yehuda, the last two being teachers of Rashi. Later, German-Jewish authorities mention a terrible tale, a son of his who was unfortunately forcibly converted to Christianity, and further tragedy ensued, unfortunately died before he could repent. Historians have concluded that this event probably occurred in 1012 when the German king Heinrich II issued an edict of expulsion against the Jews of Maine. So you see, even before the Crusades, from the get-go, Jewish life in Germany had its horrible moments. Rashi expressed the reverence for a benegation that subsequent generations have adopted. And Rashi himself was apparently the source of the designation Maor HaGola, the light of the exile regarding Rabbeinu Gershom. One of the interesting aspects of Rabbeinu Gershom's numerous halachic decisions 
that he seems to base his rulings on the Bible and the Talmud and the Gemara alone, without referring to Gaonim, the great authorities who lived after the Talmudic period, before his own. And you cannot claim that he was unaware, because in one tshuva he writes that he prefers the opinions of his teacher, Rav Yudah ben Meir Kohen Leontin, to that of the Babylonian Gaon, Rav Yehudain Rav Shreira. This response shows that Benegeshon was indeed acquainted with rulings of the Gaonim, but nonetheless followed that of his own teacher. The Vilna edition of Shas contains a brief commentary to the tractates Bolabasra, Tainis, and most of Seder Kachim, except for Zvachim, ascribed to Benegeshon. But scholars for over a hundred years have concluded that these works were not actually written by Rabbeinu Gershom, but were the work of his pupils and of their pupils. Although one certainly can maintain that he laid the foundation. For example, Rav Nosan ben Yechiel, in his Talmudic dictionary, the Aruch, calls the commentary sometimes as the commentary of the sages of Magensa. In any event, it was superseded, of course, by Rashi's commentary. Rabbeinu Gershom transcribed the entire mission in his own hand as well as a copy of the Masoric Gedola of the Bible, which contains the precise tradition of how to spell the words of the Bible, chaseros, yuseros, when you have the vav, when you have the yud, when you don't have the vav, when you don't have the yud, etc. Benegeshen composed slichos and piyutim. Fascinatingly, Professor David Flusser, who spent his career studying Yosifon, Yosifon is a retranslation of Josephus from Latin into Hebrew, composed in Italy in the year 953. Professor Flusser claimed that somehow Benegeshem himself obtained a copy of that work and proceeded to make an autographed copy of that work, Yosifon. Benegeshem's chuvas were collected over 60 years ago by a scholar named Shlomo Eidelberg. One famous chuva concerns a Kohen who never had converted to Christianity under duress. Now, he did tshuva, and he wanted to rejoin the Jewish community. Could he once again duchen? Could he perform because Kohenim? Could he once again get the first aliyah? Tosus in Meseches Menachas and Meseches Tainis quote Rashi that he made. He is considered to be a Balmum. After all, he did an act of worshipping Christianity in Ebuch one that the Rishonim in Germany felt is a So he has a blemish. He would not have been allowed to perform the sacrificial service in the temple of Yerushalayim anymore. But, Rashi says, he can dochen and can enjoy the perquisites of Kahuna. Tosin Meseches Soto quotes the same view in the name of Rabbeinu Gershom. And Professor Eidelberg quotes a tshuva in this regard. Among Rabbeinu Gershom's numerous arguments in his heter, to allow the Kohen, HaChoset B'Tshuva, to Duchin and to get the first aliyah, is the desire not to shut the door in the face of a Baal Tshuva, allowing him to resume his previous status in the community will perhaps give him more impetus to return. Rabbi Nagershim's name is associated with many takanos, ordinances regarding Jewish family life. Probably the most famous of those is his cherim, that is, his edict, the, viola- the violation of which will be punished with the excommunication from the Jewish community against bigamy. 
There's this issue that I would like to devote the preponderance of the remainder of this lecture to. The outset, let me say, I, am, I will be following the approach of Professor Avram Grossman, who's a from historian in Eretz Israel. He's a leading authority of Jewish rabbis in 11th century Germany. Here's his book, Chachmei Ashkenaz Harishonim, which of course has a chapter on Rabbeinu Gershom. Now, the question is, what is the historical background of this ordinance? How do they fit the structure of Jewish life at the time in Germany and northern France? Now, at the outset, we must mention that, of course, there's a huge literature regarding the ordinance against polygamy. First of all, we have to ask, do we have absolute proof that Rabbeinu Gershom was the author? Perhaps, as some has argued, the ordinance was a later date, and it was attributed to him in order to vest it with the authority of a great name. Now, in the 11th century, the greatest name, as Rashi already attested, would, was Rabbeinu Gershom. So Professor Grossman, and I'm pleased with this, he claims that the attempt of some scholars to date the ordinance to the end of the 12th or even to the 13th century is mistaken. Why? We certainly have evidence that's much earlier. In the middle of the 12th century, the German-Jewish figure Rav Yoh, Rav Eliezer ben Yoel Halevi, mentions the cherem as a matter of course as being enacted by Rabbi Gershom. In the case discussed by the Rav Yoh, we won't discuss it here, the litigants were elderly, and the original facts of the matter go back even further to the beginning of the 12th century. No sages of Germany or France from the 12th century and onwards ever contradict the attribution the attribution, excuse me, to Rabbeinu Gershom. Hasidi Ashkenaz, who was so meticulous in their Mesoros and their traditions, also accept the attribution. Although, so, Professor Grossman says, although there is no definite proof, and moreover, there is no need to claim that he enacted his regulations by himself without a Besdin, that is true, but there is no good reason to, not, to deny the tradition of Rabbeinu Gershom himself along, presumably, with his Bezdin, promulgated the original ordinance. Moreover, he says, it is possible that originally the ordinance was accepted in the first place by the people of Magenza, of Mainz, and gradually spread to other communities. So his conclusion is the tradition that it was Rabbeinu Gershom, along with his Bezdin, that made this cherem should be cautiously accepted. But now we must ask a much further and much deeper question. Why did he and his Bezin make the rule? Well, there's a problem. There's a general methodological point here. If there's no need to make a Takana, Takanas are not made. If there's no uh, excessive drinking at Kiddush clubs, you won't make a ban on the Kiddush clubs on uh, Shabbos. It's been pointed out that because of COVID, now we haven't had that problem for a while. Now, Professor Grossman poses the problem in a very stark manner. In all the sources that we have that depict Jewish life in Germany in the 11th century, halachic decisions, exegesis, descriptions of Jewish customs, religious poetry, chronicles, there is not a single example of a family unit where a man has more than one wife. Even the memory books, the 
horrible books that talk all, all the Jews who lost their lives during the first crusade of 1096, there's not one case of a standard marriage of a man to a second wife when the first wife was alive. The only exceptions we find is a case where the first wife had been childless for already 10 years, a case where in any event, according to many German Jewish authorities, Benegeshem's cherem doesn't apply. So following the established historical principle that ordinances are not enacted unless there is a need to redress a problem, if there's no problem, why is there a need for a cherem? Or to put it in a slightly different formulation, what historical motive prompted an ordinance forbidding polygamy in a community where there was no community to begin with. So Professor Grossman presents five possible solutions, and then Achon Achon Chaviv, he presents his own sixth reason. Number one, there was a Professor Epstein. He was of the opinion that at the beginning of the 11th century, the Jewish community in Germany was just being formed from different migrations. You know, there's a general question. How did the Jews get to Germany? So the Shavuot Mashal tells us that some went north from Lucca in northern Italy. If you all remember from the, the last wonderful scene, The Sound of Music, you know, they're, they're, they're crossing the Alps. Could you imagine how hard it was a thousand years ago to somehow make it north from Italy all the way to Germany? Everything suggested that there were some, not many, but some Jewish migrants to Germany from Asia, from the communities in Iraq and Bavel. In the Muslim countries, Jews had two wives. That was the practice. So maybe the ordinance was directed against these migrants. Second scholar named, I think, Natalia Tzvi Roth disputed this. He says, what exactly is the case? Well, the two possibilities. Are we talking about someone who already came with two wives and had children with both their wives? He claims it would have been inconceivable for Rabbeinu Gershom to demand the breakup of the family unit. That far, there's no evidence that anyone would have gone there. So rather, we must say that the cherem would have been designed to present a marriage from starting in the first place. But since the local custom of the German Jews was monogamous, it was very hard to imagine that these new immigrants would have disregarded convention and proceed to try to marry two wives. The daughters of the German Jewish community would never have consented to such a scheme in the first place. Was it to prevent such polygamous marriages from newcomers from Islamic lands? In other words, you have two wives, don't bother coming. But once again, our information on migration to Germany does not indicate any substantial migration from Islamic countries in the first place. So we're back to square one. What's the reason for the cherem? Roth himself claimed that there was a minority among native German Jews who practiced polygamy. Avon Grossman strongly disputes that. There's absolutely no evidence for that. And he feels evidence from silence doesn't work. It is true that as we go further and further back in time, there's less and less evidence. So if we know, for example, in 1096, there was 
not a single family that was polygamous. Is that proof that there was no polygamous family in 1006? It's not proof, but once again, the entire literature of the German community from the get-go in the late 900s just doesn't have evidence for this. Grossman continues to bring a very strong argument against this. You know, we have in the medieval period, unfortunately, so much hatred by the Christian community against the Jews. Figures such as Agobard of Lyon, the earliest time, the 800s and 900s, before the Crusades, already attacking Jews. They were attacking the Jews for things that were true, that they, they lent an interest, and, and they were attacking Jews for falsehoods. There's not one single example of an attack on the Jews for practicing bigamy. And we do know that at that time the Christians already were monogamous. If there was a bigamy, a bigamy problem in Germany, they would have mentioned it. So we're back to square one. Up to now, possibility number three. Third suggestion was offered by Salo Baron, who was for many years the professor of Jewish history at Columbia and wrote the massive multi-volume work, The Social and Religious History of the Jews. In his opinion, the impetus for the Cheren was something else. You know, the first people who came to Germany, like in all migrations of the Jews, there weren't such big Tamari Chachamim. But as the years went on, they became more and more learned. Talmud Bavli became more studied. It was the spread of Jewish literary sources, clearing, clearly showing the p permissibility of bigamy. Simply put, from the Gemara, people see that polygamy is, murdered, is, is permitted. So, Baron theorizes that certain individuals may begun to clamor for the reintroduction of the mode of family life that existed in the Babylonian Talmud into Germany as well. As Baron put it, Rabbi Gershom and his associates may well have been prompted by such demands to reinforce the existing Western order and to threaten the banishment of all would-be bigamists who would troll the Gomorrah and try to change matters. But Rome did admit that it's only conjecture. Now, it is true that at the beginning of the 11th century, works of halacha and various halachic traditions reached Germany and northern France. And we now, from the Genese, have very interesting evidence of Jews from Germany who studied under Rav Haigon. But at the end of the day, once again, it's a hypothesis without any positive support. Moreover, I would add that there's a difference between, let's say, for example, there was a big dispute among the early communities of Germany came up this year. What do you do regarding Besamim Motzai Yantif? What do you do with regarding Besamim Motzai Shabbat We, of course, um, don't have the summon in either case. The question is why? This was already disputed in the time of Ben Gershom. That's one of the first issues that they started bringing riots from the Gemara. But there's a difference between, it's only important, but the relatively non fundamental issue of the summon on Yantav and the whole issue of family life. Could you have one or two wives? A person would, would more easily change your position on the summon. You know, based on the Gemara, you found you know, that people 800 years ago assumed one way, then on the issue of one or two wives. So, 
We're up to reason number four. Zev Falk, he wrote an important work on Jewish matrimonial law. He says the answer was right in front of us. It was the Christian surroundings of the German Jewish communities. And we know that there was a campaign by the Christians against the people in France, Norman, uh, Northern, Northern France and Germany around 150 years before Ben Gershom. So shortly after the period of Charlemagne, Louis the Pious and those uh, kings. Finally, the Christians resolved it by absolutely prohibiting bigamy. Another point, in the early part of the Middle Ages, time of Ben Gershom, the Jews and the Christians, they were not separated they lived in, one side of the street was the Jewish community, the other side of the street was the Christian community. Everybody knew what the other community was doing. So it's virtually certain that the Jewish community knew all about the Christian ban of polygamy. Another point, the status of women in the Jewish community in Germany at the time was higher than that in the Jewish community in other areas. This comes out, you know, the Rav Yah just had for Pesach, he says, yeah, all our women are chashuv, so all our women do haseba. So as more and more Jews became aware of the Christian position, they said, hey, we also have a right not to share the benefits of marriage with a co-wife. So at a certain point, a general regulation was set. And that was the cherem of Ben Gershom. So here... Possibly number four, Avram Grossman concedes that Falk is partially correct. And it's hard to imagine that the ordinance was not uh, promulgated at all without seeing the Christian environment. Indeed, Seba Hasidim, which discusses so many Minhagim in Germany, writes, in every town the custom of the Jews is the same as the custom of, of the Gentiles. However, Avram Grossman insists that it still makes no sense to make a cherim if you don't have polygamy in practice. And we know there's no evidence for, for polygamy in practice. We still have to nail that part of the problem. Before we come to Grossman's own solution, let's mention the fifth suggestion here, of course, that of Mordechai Friedman, who did a lot of work on the Geniza regarding Jewish matrimonial conditions in Islamic countries. So he points out, you know, there's a tradition the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael, as opposed to that of Bavel, Rav Ami from Eretz Yisrael says, Al Pidin, you're only allowed to have one wife. So maybe the German tradition was fortifying the view of Rav Ami. And that was codified by Rabbeinu Gershom. The problem is, as Abram Grossman says, this is against the words of Rabbeinu Gershom, he says, and himself. Our tradition, which talks about Rabbeinu Gershom's discussion of the matter, says, he says, I know the halacha follows Rava. I know that Alpidin from the Gemara polygamy is mutter. It's not us, sir. And as he's saying, we don't pass it like Ravami. And so on the contrary, if Ravami would be right, there'd be no need for a takana. Rabbeinu Gershom would just say, hey, we pass like Ravami, and it's us, sir. Rabbeinu Gershom did not say that. He said that, Alpidin, it's mutter, but nonetheless, I'm forbidding it. So finally, come to Avon Grossman's view, which he, huh, it's the, always the prerogative of all authors to say that their view is right, 
and all the other views are incorrect, Avram Grossman cleverly puts his view at the end. He says, Falk is half right. There was certainly some influence by the Christian communities, but we've got to find the cases that Rabbi Gershon was fighting. The answer is two words. International trade. The treasure trove of Geniza documents that we now have provide a fuller picture of the Jewish merchants from Germany who spent much time in other countries, Provence, Spain, North Africa, even the Baghdad, Muslim lands. And their stay in foreign countries often lasted several years. This fact explains numerous historical problems in Rabbeinu Gershom. This explains, for example, the remarkable phenomenon that technical commercial terms of Arabic origin, such as ma'rufia, partnership, penetrated the language of the German Jews in the 11th century. Needless to say, extended forays away from home could destroy family life. In the later period, Rabbeinu Tam made a takana that one may not stay away for more than 18 months, except for certain uh, exceptions. A clear sign that merchants were staying away for more than 18 months. Now what would happen if merchants would be away for three, four, five years? They would marry another woman where? In the place where they're staying, whether it's Baghdad or Egypt. That's the answer. Now, Jews in the, in the Islamic countries, they practiced polygamy, so they had no problem with somebody, a merchant from Germany, who would be in Baghdad. He will tell them the truth. Yeah, I have another wife back home. Good. <laughs> it doesn't bother us. Many of our ever have two wives here. So they will not see anything wrong. Indeed, from the other perspective, and this is a very strong proof that Avram Grossman gives, we have Chubas Harif going from the other point of view. He's saying that these people are now, for example, let's say in North Africa. So the riff says there was pressure. Don't go back to Germany. Don't make your wife here an aguna. They use the word aguna. Not that there was any desire, you know, not that one party wanted a divorce, just you have to have family life with your wife. So there was opposition for these men to go back to Germany. This, Avram Gosset concludes, is the most plausible explanation for the cherem. Rabbeinu Gershom wanted to stop this situation of people traveling to another country, having a second wife there, being there for years, and having his first wife stuck. This, we must also add another point. We already mentioned the relatively superior position of women in the German Jewish community. Wealthy parents would not stand for their daughters in Germany being left hanging by a man who would go away to uh, Iraq or Egypt for uh, four or five years. Hence the Takana. With its background, Avram Gross explains two other things. That's the prohibition for a man to divorce his wife against her will. He says, somebody might say, all right, I can't have two wives, I'll just divorce my first one. No, you can't do that either. This move also was prohibited. Finally, Grossman uses this background to explain the third Taikonavarinogeshem. Here, I must confess, I wasn't as convinced about this as I was for the previous point, but I'll mention it. There's another very famous Takana Rabbeinu Gershom, not to read someone else's mail. Now, you would say that's not connected with family issues, right? It's, uh, it's an ethical point. I'm writing a letter to, uh, to my friend, don't look at my mail. 
But remarkably, we know that this cherem is always bunched together with the other cheremim. Why? So based on his idea that the issue of international trade was the motivating factor for all the cheremim, Rabbeinu Geshem, this is the answer. This cherem also concerned the economic circumstances of the German merchants who stayed away from home. While away, they would send letters to their wives, the business partners, by the hands of their companions, turning to Germany. And in their letters, remember, no telephone, forget about cell phone, no telephone, no fax, no nothing. All you had is the written manuscripts of the letters that you can have a carpet business. <laughs> but that's it. No other evidence. Very small communities. Fierce competition. In the letters, they gave details of the business affairs, export, imports, the goods, economic links. This information was confidential in character. There was constant competition between the few Jewish merchants for the potential markets. In the 11th century, only the force of a cherem could overcome or at least restrain the great temptation to read these letters and gain economic advantage or leverage over an opponent. So Avram Grossman concludes, the cherem against bigamy, the cherem not to divorce a wife against her will, and even the cherem not to read someone else's mail were all due to the issue of the international trade and the case of the international merchants and were designed to enhance the position of the Jewish woman in Germany in the 11th century and even later, giving the Jewish woman in Germany a chashivus that was certainly better at the time than those in the Islamic countries. I'll just end with one thing about my mother's Chon Racha. My mother, 75 years ago, before even like remember she told me, after the State of Israel, before, after the Holocaust, for the State of Israel, 1946, 47, 48, so there was a, she was a violent group called Dati. But my mother, learning from my Zaidi, used to pronounce it in the old Ashkenazic way, Hashomer Hadati. So this was when Rav Herzog, they were talking about having maybe a Sanhedrin. It didn't happen, and I'm not going to litigate that uh, issue now. But when they were talking about having a Sanhedrin, someone said, you know what we need? We need a person like Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom, who had personal tragedy, but also devoted his life to the upkeep and the maintenance and the Torah grandeur of his kehila in Magenza. So we all hope, uh, you know, and there will be a Sanhedrin and we'll have these types of figures once again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Should have an aliyah. Rasa Hakkadish